All right, we're in a uh, series on the book of Ruth, and, I, and I'm loving it. I love Ruth. I love, the, I, love this, I love the story. I love Ruth because there's a lot of history and there's a lot of background that you kind of have to work with to understand what's going on in the book of Ruth. And we're going to look at some of that today. And I always struggle, it, it is a struggle, and maybe not always successfully, with how much background to share uh, because I don't want it to just be interesting for interesting's sake. I want it to help us as, as we uh, look at the Scripture. And what I think is important here is it will help us as we look at other Scriptures. It'll help us as we see other, other times. There's, this is a very agricultural society, and they're going to talk about agricultural things. And this is not my strong point, so I have to do research on this. Um, when I went to grad school, my wife and I, we rented this um, rundown little house, little tiny house, just a mess. And what we did is I traded work on the house for low rent. And, uh, and, and one of the things the guy said, he's got a big backyard. And they, the previous people who owned it or rented it, whatever it was, they'd had a garden there. So it was clear, there was a garden area that was cleared. And the guy says, you can plant, it grows great. You know, the soil's great. And there you took all these vegetables and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, yeah, that sounds great. And within two or three months, I had a huge crop of weeds. I, I guess I have a black thumb. I don't know. I have, a, I have a red thumb. Maybe that's it, death. I have a death thumb on, on plants. I kill good ones and grow bad ones. So um, as we read some of this stuff, I have no clue what's going on. I have no clue what's going on. And so learning that has been good for me. And we're going to talk about some of that. We're going to look at Ruth chapter 2. This is an unexpected grace. Um, and I'm going to read the whole chapter of Ruth chapter 2. That's 23 verses. I know, you know, we, I'm this way too. We're not used to sitting and listening or reading for periods of time like that. Uh, so you can follow along in your Bible on your phone if you have it, an app, or just listen. And uh, this is kind of like worship where you have to actually work a little bit to focus. And so here we go. Listen to this beautiful, beautiful story. Now, Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth, the Moabite, said to, you notice the author is always mentioning Ruth, the Moabite, like we're mixed up as to which Ruth they might be talking about. And it's not because we might be mixed up. It is the author's way of reminding us this woman will be disliked, even hated in where she's at. She will be hated. Okay. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. So she went out, entered a field, and began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Just then, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they answered. Boaz asked the overseer of his harvesters, who, who does that young woman belong to? The overseer replied, she is the Moabite who came from Moab with Naomi. There's, there's an emphasis for you. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She came into the field and has remained here from morning till now, except for a short rest in the shelter. So Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the women. I have told the men not to lay a hand on you. And whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. At this, she bowed down with her face to the ground. She asked him, why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me a foreigner? Boaz replied, I have been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with a people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May, the, may you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. May I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord, she said. You have put me at ease by speaking kindly to your servant, though I do not have the standing of one of your servants. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, come over here, have some bread and dip it in the wine vinegar. Then she sat down with the harvesters. He offered her some roasted grain. She ate all she wanted and had some left over. 
As she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men, let her gather among the sheaves and don't reprimand her. Even pull out some stocks for her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up. Don't rebuke her. So Ruth gleaned in the field until evening. Then she threshed the barley she had gathered and it amounted to an ephah. ephah. She carried it back down. She carried it back to town and her mother-in-law saw how much she had gathered. Ruth also brought out and gave her what she had left over from what she had eaten enough. Her mother-in-law asked her, where did you glean today? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Then Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one at whose place she had been working. The name of the man I worked, for to, worked with today is Boaz, she said. The Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. She added, that man is our close relative. He is one of our guardian redeemers. Then Ruth the Moabite said, he even said to me, Stay with my workers until they finish harvesting all my grain. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it will be good for you, my daughter, to go with the women who work for him, because in someone else's field you might be harmed. So Ruth stayed close to the women of Boaz to glean until the barley and wheat harvests were finished, and she lived with her mother-in-law. All right, we have this incredible story uh, of, of what is going on, but first I just want to remind you of what we looked at last week. It's the time of the judges. This gives us an idea. If you read the book of Judges, you have an idea of what the world was like at that time in the land of Israel. Uh, the phrase that comes up multiple times is people did what was right in their own eyes. People did not live for God. They did not pay attention to the law of God. And they went through this cycle of disobedience. And then they would be oppressed. And then they would cry out to God for help. Then God would save them. Then things would go well for a while. Then they'd fall into disobedience. And the whole cycle goes multiple, multiple times. It's the book of Judges. Every judge was a person God raised up to bring salvation, to bring freedom to his people, to save them from what they'd gotten themselves into. So people who followed God were rare. All right? Remember that. Important from, uh, uh, to remember that. Famine is in the land at that time. Children are key to survival. When you are a subsistence farmer, when farming is all you can do, all right, having children is key. Why? Because maybe right now you're 24 and you're, you got it together. You're strong. You're healthy. But in 15 to 20 years, you're going to be struggling physically because of the backbreaking work that farming is. And you will need to have children to step in and pick up the slack. They'll be 15 to 20 years old. They'll be able to step in and work hard and do the backbreaking work that you can't do anymore. So children are the key to survival. Children are celebrated, right? We've seen this. We saw this in Haggai. We see this here. There's, it's, just a, it's just a huge thing that's going on. Children are celebrated. We saw it with Hannah when we looked at Hannah not too long ago. And so that's important. And then the other thing is, your family name is incredibly important to you. The family name. And the family name is tied in with the land. If you belong to a certain family, you inherit a certain portion of land. And it's in your name. If you don't have any children, your name dies out and the land goes. But to them, more important than the land is their name. Carrying on the family name is incredibly, incredibly important. All right. Not as important in these days, but we still think about it. We still think about it. Um, we have a man named Elimelech. He has two young boys. Uh, they evidently are, and, and as far as we can judge by what their ages are, like a lot of people would put them at like the 9 to 12, 9 to 11 range, somewhere in there. They're not ready to be able to help with the land. And there's a famine. And so things are going downhill quick. Elimelech gets into trouble for some reason, and he decides, I'm going to Moab. They have food. I'm going to Moab. Okay, now, if he's in financial trouble and he's going to Moab, he doesn't have a lot of recourse as to what he does to, to be able to get out of financial trouble. And so he goes there. He goes there. And that's a lot of people do. I don't, I don't blame him. He feels like, more than likely, his, his children's lives are at stake. His, his name, his heritage, his future. My boys can't starve. I can't starve or they will starve. My wife, I, I don't have any. And so, and so he went. 
And then tragedy struck. He died. His wives got married. Oh, his wives. His, his, his boys got married to Moabite women. And his two boys died. So there's these two Moabite daughter-in-laws and Naomi left over. It's been 10 years, and they hear that the famine has lifted in Judah. And she decides to go back. And she tells her two daughter-in-laws, go back to your family. you got no future. Israelites hate Moabites. And, and it, it's not without reason. All right, it's not without reason. But Israelites hate Moabites. And she says, go back. And, and one of them, uh, Orpah, said finally realizes, yeah, you're right, and she goes back to her family. But Ruth makes this incredibly powerful statement. Ruth basically says this. I mean, just she, she, she knows she's not gonna, probably not going to find a husband in Israel. She says, I know our prospects are grim. I know that quite possibly we may soon die. She mentions death quickly in, in her statement. I know that these people that I'm making, my people will hate me. I renounce my gods. I am Yahweh's now. I am with you, Naomi. I will follow you and I will follow Yahweh. This incredible statement of faith and trust and love. She did what Jesus later calls picking up your cross, denying yourself and following me. And at the very end of that, I kind of mentioned it, Naomi laments. She lays out her bitterness at her life situation. And if you remember, and, and if you don't, I'd encourage you to go back and watch it. You can get it on our, on our, our website or on YouTube. And not watching it because, oh, you know, you'll listen to me. No, watch it because it's, it's, it's an incredibly uh, powerful and, and moving story. And we looked for a moment at laments. And we said th four things. Lament. A lament is a proof of a, of a relationship. A lament is a pathway to in intimacy with God. A lament is a prayer for God to act. And lamenting is also participation in the pain of others. Laugh with those who laugh and weep with those who weep. So now they're in Bethlehem. And the end of chapter one tells us that it is the talk of the town. It's a small town. So word travels fast. And, and everybody is, is wondering at what they, because at first they say, Shh, is this Naomi? Look what's happened to her over these years, you know. And who's that with her? And you can imagine in a small town, right? A Moabite? She brought a Moabite here? Why would she do that? We don't serve their kind here, right? Just like out of Star Wars. It's out of Star Wars when they say that, I'm sorry. It's the whole NIMBY thing, right? Not in my backyard. And so now we come to chapter two. And I want you to see first here. Uh, there we go. I want you to see first here a providential choice. Is that on? I hope so. Yes, it is. There it goes. Okay. We're going to see a providential choice. This, and what, what do I mean by that? This, this means a choice is made, but God's providence is involved, and we see God working behind the scenes. And we're going to just run through this, the whole chapter. First verse says, Now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. Now, this is an aside by the author. He's talking, he's talking to us. He's talking to the reader. He says, I want to pull you, bring you up to date, and kind of pull you up to a certain level so you understand as you start to hear these people what's going on, and, and it's important for you to know this, all right? So it's important for us to know that Boaz is a man of standing. Now, that's a Hebrew word that has this idea of somebody. It can mean they're wealthy. It can mean, but it has this, this idea overall of a person who is a righteous man. God has blessed him because he lives for God. So he's a man who follows God, right? He's a man of standing. Um, the idea of being strong, the idea of being righteous, this, that's what we know about him. And here is a man who follows God. Remember we said, this is rare. This is rare. Here's a man who follows God, and then we learn this. He owns fields. We learn he has employees. But the, the, the thing is, he's from the clan of Elimelech. So this is, especially for, for, for Jewish readers, they go, oh, okay, so we're going to get into some things, and we're going to talk about this a little more that make this incredibly important for us to know. But I want you to see something as, as we go through this. I'll wrap it up this way too, but in the book of Ruth, Boaz becomes a picture of Jesus and Ruth is a picture of us, the church. We are all in need of God's grace. We are all in situations that we cannot fix on our own. 
we have fallen and we can't get up, right? And verse one is for us. It heightens the scene. The writer is saying, I want you to understand the importance of this. This is a very big cultural issue. All right, so verse two, it says, and Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain from anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. Now, this is the idea that comes from, and God commands this. There's a, there's a, there's a, a huge uh, portion of Leviticus that talks about this. And it's the idea that um, this is how God provided for people who were destitute and people who were in serious trouble. When people were harvesting in those days, the, uh, the men... Would, would walk in the front and, and they would oftentimes with a scythe or sometimes they just got down like this with a knife and they would cut the stalks, right? And they gather them up and they would bind them and they'd just leave them on the ground and, and then they'd go. So it'd be like a line of men, lots of men sometimes, just moving ahead, cutting, bundling, dropping. Then the women would come behind and the women would gather the bundles gather them up on their shoulders, and they'd walk them to a place where they were going to store them, and maybe there was a wagon that was going to take them to a storehouse or, you know, a lean-to or something like that. And so there was this movement all the time, men with knives or scythes uh, working, bundling, dropping, women picking up, putting on their shoulders, lines going back and forth. So, and what would happen is, if you were in trouble or destitute, you were, God commanded them to do this. God said, let them follow at a distance, and anything that dropped, oh, here's a head of grain. Oh, here's, oh, and they, they could pick up the leftovers. In fact, God tells them, don't go through your field a second time to pick up all those leftovers. Let the poor do that. They need help. And then he even tells them, the corners of your field, don't even harvest them. Let the poor do that. It was, it was welfare. It was how they took care of those who, who were, and it was called the coming back and getting what was left over was called gleaning. Gleaning through the leftovers. Is, is, and so they called it gleaning. And in Leviticus uh, 23 or 25, I can't remember, he says, I don't, this is how I want you to do it. What's the idea here? The idea is God saying, this land is my land. I'm letting you use it, but it's my land. And I will bless you with this land, and you are then to in turn bless those who are in need. That's my commandment to you. And so Ruth is going to walk out and hope that she finds someone who follows the law of God and allows gleaners. Some landowners didn't. They wouldn't let anybody glean. They would say, I'm too poor. I need everything I can get. You can't glean. And so they would by force keep them from gleaning. Sometimes the men would run them off, mistreat them, whatever. And so she is going to go out and look for a piece of land to glean. So she went out, entered a field, and began to glean behind the harvesters. That's how you do it. Just walk out and you start and just see, see what happens. As it turned out, this is a, a, a Hebrew word that kind of means just by happenstance. My, what a quinky dink, right? What a coincidence, right? And it is a word that is used oftentimes to mean it's not a coincidence. It's God. It's God. As it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz. Now, we know about who Boaz is because we were told that. She doesn't. Who is from the clan of Elimelech. So, what would it look like? Here is, here's a picture of, uh, of like, I don't know if it's barley or wheat, okay? How would I know? But they're similar. For, all right, so there's a picture of what it uh, likes. Here's what it likes as they're, as they're harvesting. See, there's the men, and they're leaving, they're leaving piles. They're leaving bundles. And then along come the women, and they pick up these huge bundles. And I want you to see, this is backbreaking work. I mean, this is bending over, picking up, bending over, picking up, getting down low with a, with a, with a curved knife and just whoosh, gathering it's backbreaking work, okay? Gleaning is even more backbreaking because you just spent the whole, you spend the whole time getting, just rustling through things, looking, looking for parts of a head or, you know, whatever you can to gather. And so this is what's going on. And so in verse three, I should go back to it. In verse three, she went out. She starts 
following the harvesters. All right, she's not picking up bundles. She's picking up whatever's left over behind them. It's a difficult word. When, um, my oldest brother, let's see, well, he was about 14, 13 or 14, and, uh, and he was feeling like he was somebody in this world, and he told my parents, I want to work this, this summer. I want to I work. Well, 13 or 14, you, you just can't. There's not many jobs, except for agricultural work. And my dad said, I have a cousin who has cotton fields. He will gladly pay you per bale. <laughs> He'll gladly pay you. And, and they would just give him a sack. And when the sack's full, you know, it's like 25 cents. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever picked cotton before, but I did. We went out. After a month, my parents got this frantic phone call. Please come get me. This is horrible. My hands are all cut and infected. I can't do it. I can't do it. And then my dad's kind of like, mm, let's go rescue our wayward son. You know, he's learned an important lesson. So I went, we all went, you know, to gloat. Um, we all went, my grandmother went. And uh, my grandmother said, said to me, Bobby, you want to go out and pick a little cotton? And I was like, you get paid for this? I mean, the cotton's just right there. Just pluck, pluck, pluck. You get paid for this? And, and she said, yes, you do. You pick enough and you'll get paid. And uh, so she held the bag. And I just, this little kid went and, ow, there's all kinds of thorny, sharp edges on cotton plants. Growing around the cotton ball is often sharp and you can prick yourself or cut yourself. So all of a sudden I'm realizing, I'm going, how much is this worth? <laughs> yeah, about, you know, one, one thousandth of a cent right there because they pay you by the pound. So it took me two plants to realize I was not cut out for that kind of work. And uh, so I said, I said to my grandmother, I'm really tired and I need some water. And she said, okay, are you gonna come back out? And I said, no, because I didn't think so. So, awful. so two brothers learned a lesson there, right? And, and th this is, it's that kind of work. It's that kind of work. It's, it's, it starts around mid to late March. It goes to about mid-June with the barley, and then the wheat is right after it. It's three months. It's three months of going to the field and harvesting, harvesting, harvesting. And I'll show you. Okay, this is, doesn't help you biblically too much, but what they would do, I thought this was so interesting. They knew it would take them forever to harvest one field. So when they plant their fields, they stagger them in time. They plant a week later, and then a week later, and then a week later. That's why it takes a month to harvest the barley and a month to harvest the wheat. Why? Because it takes us so long to get through. If they all, if they all matured at the same time, the ones that we get to last would start to rot and would be eaten by all the animals and would be worthless. And so they would, and you can see they've done that here. I'm pointing at the picture like you can see my finger, right? Bottom left-hand side of this picture, that's not ready for harvest, not yet. And they planned it because that's what, okay? Okay, I thought that was interesting. I'll never show that again. All right, so this is what's going on. She just happens. She has no clue. But the writer is letting us know that God is involved. Now, here's, here's something that's key for us. What are we being taught by this? God is working behind the scenes, oftentimes in ways we cannot recognize, but God is working. If you are right now, if you are like Naomi is and you're in a lament, I know it's hard and I know this doesn't necessarily make it any better, but I assure you that God is working behind the scenes in ways that you cannot imagine, all right? Ruth cannot imagine right now what is gonna happen because of the choice she has made of a field to glean and that God just by happenstance, huh, God directed her to that field. It's very important for us to understand things that we can overlook or things that are behind the scenes. God is working. One of my favorite theologians is Ferris Bueller, and he says this. Yeah, whenever I say favorite theologians, you guys just know what's coming, right? Okay, what weirdo is he gonna quote? He says this, life moves at you pretty fast. If you don't stop and look around once in a while, you'll miss it. God is working. He's working behind the scenes, all right? 
So we need to stop and take notice. Next, verse five and six and seven here. Boaz asked the overseer of his harvesters, who does that young woman belong to? The harvester replied, she is the Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvester. She came into the field and has remained here from the morning till now, except for a short rest in the shelter. All right. Now, I want you to look at verse five. This almost, is, almost sounds like Boaz is saying, who owns her? And, I, and he's really not saying that. It's a, little, it's a little more nuanced than that. He is saying, who is responsible for her well-being? And this is a very Jewish thing to say. This involves us, again, culture and history is so important. When, uh, 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 say, a Jewish man, and maybe somebody was going to do something to one of his kids, and he would say, I'm responsible for that person. And what he would literally say is, that person is under my cloak. That's the literal of it. That person is under my cloak. And if you came to visit a Jewish person, and it still happens today with some of the Bedouin tribes and, and, and other people like that, where you come to visit and they feel obligated to let you come into their tent. They feel obligated to feed you a meal, to let you spend the night. And they will say, you are under my cloak. And, and um, I was reading a guy and he was saying modern, uh, some modern day Bedouins he stayed with. They said this, they said, you are under my cloak for three days. That's it, three days. At the end of three days, if I'm really mad at you, I can kill you. But during the three days, you are under my cloak. I am responsible for you. And so what is happening? Boaz sees this younger woman in the field by herself. No one seems to have eyes on her, anything like that. And he goes, who's responsible for her? Who's responsible? Whose cloak is she under? Because this is not good. There should be someone here to represent, someone here to say, she's under my cloak. You know, it, 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 maybe she has a husband. Maybe she has a husband who's been injured. He can't work. He should get to the edge of the field so he can say, she's under my cloak. Because if she's not under anybody's cloak, I, I, how do you say this? It, this, is, this is how they would look at it. She's fair game for any, any person who might want to do something that would be horrific because there's no one to be responsible for her. There's no one who, if I do something to her, there's no one who will make me pay for it. There's no one who will be responsible for her. And so he's asking a very pointed question. Who does that young woman belong to? Who is responsible? He's, he's perplexed that she is there gleaning like that. He doesn't quite know what to make of this. And the overseer tells her, oh, Oh, Moabite, he says it twice. It's like, Moabite, Moabite, right? Like, he, he, but he's just, what he's doing is he's emphasizing her foreignness. But there's something I think that's very interesting here. It is very obvious that Boaz is a godly man. He follows God's laws. It's very obvious that these people who work for him, they seem to reciprocate. He says, the Lord bless you. They, they say the same thing back. That would be the idea He's trying to tell us these workers, they love, they, he loves them and they love him. He takes care of them. And so the overseer is going to do what he would do. So the overseer is saying, hey, she's a foreigner, but God tells us how we're supposed to treat the foreigners. And so I gave her permission. He allowed her to glean when she asked for permission. He knows his... his uh, he knows his employer was godly and would allow a foreigner to glean. He followed God's commands. God says to the children of Israel as they're going into the land, as you harvest, as you live there, I want you to treat foreigners this way. Treat them like they were Israelites because you were a foreigner and you were mistreated. So you know how it is. So treat them like they're one of your own. That's how you treat foreigners. And so that's what this foreman does, all right? So we have this providential choice. She has gone to the field that belongs to a, a next of kin, and he happens to be a godly man, and it happens that he follows God's law, and it happens that, you know, he, there's plenty for her to glean. And then he shows this is his character, all right? So he's a godly man, the second point, verses 8 through 17. Verse 10, at this she bowed down 
with her face to the... Yeah, I jumped too far. I'm sorry. Let me read you. Um, this is my fault. I left it out somehow. <clears throat> okay, so in verse 8... How did I not do that? <clears throat> so Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the field... Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the women. I have told the men not to lay a hand on you. And whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. All right. So he's saying, you, this is what I want you to do. Now he's showing his character. This is, this is part of being a godly man. He's saying, look, don't leave. Don't leave my people. Follow my people. When they move to a new field, you move with them to that field. You make sure you're with them because that's where protection. He, what is he saying? I will protect protect you. No one <clears throat> has taken responsibility for you in a, in a place where that could be incredibly bad. I'm doing it. I take responsibility. So I want you, I want you to go, don't go glean in another field. Stay close to my, my workers. All right. So stay close to my workers. He tell, he tells her, you follow along right after them, stay close. And my men have been charged to protect you. And then he says, and when you're thirsty, you drink out of my jars of water, right? Because now I'm protecting you. This is an incredible thing to do to a foreigner, to a Moabite. He's taking an extraordinary step. He's doing more, much more than the law requires. See, this is where the Pharisees struggled so much. They figured out the absolute minimum that the law required, and that was what they tried to meet. And even that, they couldn't meet it. But what we see is when people, when people change God's heart, they do more than the law requires. What happened? What happened, happened with the tax collector? He says, Jesus, I'm going to give people back four times what I took from them. The law doesn't require four times. The law requires you give them back their money plus interest. He says, I'm giving them back four times. Why? Because when God changes someone's heart, they change. They change and they go beyond. And they go beyond. And that's, that's what has happened here. He is saying, you will be safe. No one will make sport of you. He's saying, you, you're following our God. You're, we're gonna, I'm going to respect what our God says, but I'm going to do more. Incredibly kind, all right? He's treating her like a person who is created in the image of God. Because that ultimately, that's what God tells them in, in the first five books of the Bible. He tells them, this is how you treat people. Why? The ultimate reason is because they're created in the image of God. And I think, how can I be that kind of person? How can I be that kind of person who looks and sees Everyone I meet, this is a person created in the image of God. All right, now I'm back on, back on track here. Verse 10, at this she bowed down with her face to the ground. She asked him, why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? She, she, she says, I know, I know who I am and I know what that means. Boaz replied, I have been told all about what you have done for your mother, your mother-in-law since the death of your husband how you left your father and your mother and your homeland and you came to live with a people you did not know before. She expresses this amazement. Why are you doing this for me? I know I'm a foreigner. And it says, and this is so, this is so uh, ancient Near Eastern, right? It says that she um, bowed down with her face to the ground. <laughs> okay, this is what this means. I'm getting older. This is a hard thing, all right? It means she got on her hands and knees and she did this. She did that which interestingly also is incorporated into this idea of worship. And it, the whole thing is, it's a way of showing, it says, I'm coming to you, and, and, and we, we see this when kings conquer other kings, the defeated king would come in, and he'd have his sword, and he'd bow down with his head to the ground, and he'd put the sword and let it plunk on the ground and hold open hands, and he'd put his head down. What is he saying? I, I have no weapon, I'm totally unarmed, you or have the, you can do anything you want to me. My head is bowed, my neck is bared. To bear the neck, they would call it. My head, so if you want, you can grab my sword and cut my head off. This is how I come with nothing. 
I give it all to you. I totally yield to you. And that's incorporated into the word worship in the Old Testament, this idea. And here, she's doing that, saying, I can't believe you're doing this for me. You're, I, I, I'm standing here bowed before you because you have, you have power over me. And I'm willingly submitting to it. I'm willingly submitting to it because she understands he's treating her like she is an Israelite who deserves respect, not like a Moabite to be hated. She's saying, I'm a nobody, you're a somebody. I'm a foreigner, you're a native born. Why do you care about me? Why are you going out of your way to be so good to me? And he says, because I've heard. It's the talk of the town. He says, but some mock, maybe, you know, I'm sure some people mock, but Boaz goes, this is a mark of honor for you. I am so impressed in you, with you. This is amazing. I've heard what you've done. I heard that you said, even though I know what might happen, I'm choosing to follow Yahweh. And he's saying, I am choosing to follow grace. You know, as followers of Jesus Christ, we need to take this to heart because it's still true today. We need to use our strengths and our abilities to help those who can't help themselves. The alien, the stranger, the, the, the ethically other, the people that it's easy to hate. It was easy to hate Moabites. It was easy. But based on the unchanging uh, nature of God, because he cares for the overlooked and the abused and the hated and the mocked, we need to care about them. It has to be a part of who we are. Verse 12, may the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. May I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord, she said. You have put me at ease by speaking kindly to your servant, though I do not have the standing of one of your servants. He says to her, um, literally, this is a prayer. He says, may the Lord repay you. May the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you. It's just, this is so Jewish. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May the Lord richly reward you. The God of Israel under whose wings you have come to take refuge. He says, I recognize something here. I recognize that someone has taken responsibility for you. Someone has, to say, spread their cloak over you. And it is Yahweh. Because you have run to him. He is watching over you. Boaz says, I see it now. I see it now. He's putting it together. He's going, how did this woman happen to, I know how this woman happened to arrive in my field. Yahweh sent her here. Yahweh put me in the position to extend this grace and physical protection to her. Why? Because he's un, she's under Yahweh's care and concern. And so, he says, I see that maybe some would say you have no protector, but the Lord is your protector. He's recognizing that. You've come under his cloak. And she says in verse 13, she says, thank you. Thank you. You've consoled me. You've reassured me. That pledge of safety. You've, you're speaking kindly to me. That word kindly has the idea it, it, in, in the Hebrew, it means speaking straight to the heart. You've spoken straight to my heart to reassure me. I have I have." You know, I, I have this sense of safety now because of these words of you. She's saying, she's saying this is life-changing, and I'm thankful to you. You're treating me like I'm someone who's under your cloak, even though I know I am not. She says, I don't have that standing as the, the women you employ have. I'm aware of my standing in this community. Verse 14, at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come over here, have some bread and dip it in the wine vinegar. And she sat down with the harvesters. He offered her some roasted grain. She ate all she wanted and had some left over. This is an interesting thing to me. Um, he, says, uh, he says, now come over here. Uh, he says, come over here and, and have some bread, dip it in the wine. And then she sat down and he offered her. That word offered is to serve. It's the word to serve. He, I mean, think about this. He's this godly man of high standing in the community. She is a Moabite woman. And he served her. 
And I read a couple of guys that I value, I respect Greek, uh, Hebrew scholars, and, and they're saying the way this is constructed is the idea that he has served all of them. She's come over and sat down, and he continues. He serves her. There's this continuing sense to it. He served his workers, and he served a foreigner, someone who's not even employed by him. Why does that ring a bell? Jesus. Jesus. Boaz is being Jesus. And Jesus got down and washed his disciples' feet, even though he shouldn't have had to. And he tells them, do you understand why I did this? He said, because the world thinks this way. Big, big person at the top, all the little people are underneath, and service goes this way. He goes, this is my way. The person who should be at the top now becomes the server. Boaz should be being served, not serving. What an incredible picture of a man who wants to live for God. All right, verse 15. And she got up to glean. Boaz gave orders to his men, let her gather among the sheaves and don't reprimand her. Even pull out some of the stalks for her from the bundles and leave them there for her to pick up and don't rebuke her. Now, Boaz tells his people, when he says gather among the sheaves, what he's saying is she's not to follow the women, pull her right up in with everybody. She is not to be singly behind. She's to be with everyone. And, and I love this. And he's like, you're bundling it up. Pull a couple of good stalks out and go, oops. And then put the bundle down and the women take the bundles so that this woman will find complete heads of grain. She's not picking, she's not gleaning anymore. She's harvesting. They're giving her, making sure she has plenty. It's still work. But Boaz says, leave them out for her. Let her, let her do that and don't rebuke her. Can you imagine he's saying, don't one of you, don't even one of you mention where she's from. Don't even do it. Verse 17, so Ruth gleaned in the field until the evening. Then she threshed the barley she had gathered, and it amounted to about an ephah. All right, now, this is something where, you know, I say it's hard work. This is where the work gets very hard, all right? This is how they would thresh. They would take those stalks with the heads, you know, that have all the grain, and oftentimes they would wrap, there's different ways they would do it, but one way, they would wrap them in, in, in a, just a little piece of cloth, a, you know, a, a robe or something, and then she'd beat, they'd beat them like crazy, and what that does is it knocks the kernels off of the rest. So it separates the kernels from the rest. But also what it does is it knocks off the little fluffy edges, which is called the chaff. That gets knocked off too. But they do that for a bit. Then what they can do is just pull the stalks and shake them, and out come clean stalks with nothing on them. Now they've got a pile of the grain, the good part, with this chaff. And then they could, uh, they did it a lot of different ways that way, but they could scoop it up in the air and they just toss it. And the grain would come straight down and the chaff would flutter away, whichever way the breeze was blowing. If uh, there's not much of a breeze, sometimes they'd put it up on a table and they'd just let it fall off the edge, you know, and somebody would just do a fan. So the grain would, would hit a cloth waiting on the ground and the chaff would just flutter away, which is why in Psalm, uh, I love how scripture connects, is Psalm 1. The wicked person is like the chaff that is blown away by the wind. But the righteous one is the one that comes, you get the good. The righteous one stands firm. He's talking about, there'd be, be something like this. See, this person is just dumping them off up from head height and, and the chaff will start to wander and uh, the, the, the grain goes straight to the ground. Now, it tells us something too. It tells us that she had an ephah, which is about 30 to 40 pounds. Now she lugs it home. But it is, that is worth, in those days, a significant amount of money. That is not a day's wage. That is significantly more. And, and here's, remember this, this is mostly a barter economy. So if you have a whole bunch of grain, now you can buy clothes. Now you can pay rent, make a car payment, whatever, you know, you can... You, it, that becomes money, and she's made way more than they need to eat. She's made significantly more. 
In this passage, Boaz is going out of his way to extraordinary lengths to show his kindness and love for Ruth. And that is amazing in that culture. It is saying, someone is saying, he is saying, I've taken notice of you. I feel like you're special. And I want to treat you that way. Which begins to hint now at what is going on here. Um, one, of, one of the commentaries I have on this book is called, uh, it says, Ruth, the Romance of Redemption. He's taken notice of her. He's heard about it. It's not overt. He's not doing something incredibly overt, but he's seeming to hint at something here. And uh, we're going to see how this gets picked up on. All right. So we saw the providential choice. We see the godly man. And now from bitter to blessed, we're going to look at Naomi. Verse 18. She carried it back to town, which probably was a pain. Yeah. And her mother-in-law saw how much she had gathered. The Hebrew here emphasizes how much she has gathered. Ruth also brought out and gave to her what she had left over from what she had eaten when she had eaten enough. When he had served her, he gave her more than she needed, so she wrapped it up in a pouch and stuck it, and she brings that out too. Her mother-in-law asked her, where did you, where did you, or did you, did you rob a bank? Where did you glean today? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Then Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one in whose place she had been working. The name of the man I worked with today is Boaz, she said, which means nothing to Ruth, but means everything to Naomi, because she's from that town, right? And so she lugs all that barley grain home. She lugs home the extra food she has. And basically, Naomi's saying, what in the world? Blessing is the man who took notice of you, who took notice of you. See, that we just talked about this. God wants us to be the kind of people who take notice of the people that no one else notices or thinks about or cares about. That word means to examine, to look carefully, to see something in someone, to be interested in it, to see something that would normally be overlooked. He noticed you. Naomi is beginning to understand what is meant by all this unexpected kindness. It is a man named Boaz. Here we go, verse 20. The Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. She added, that man, that man, he is our close relative. He's one of our guardian redeemers. Then Ruth the Moabite, (laughs) you gotta keep saying that, don't you? Ruth the Moabite said, He even said to me, stay with my workers until they finish harvesting all my grain. All my grain. Every bit of it. That's three months worth of grain. He's going to let me do this every day. Right? And so what's going on here? Naomi is saying, the Lord bless him. She said, yes, Lord. Yes, don't you do it. Yes, yes. And he has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. And this is hard because it looks, she, I don't think she's saying this about Boaz. She's saying this about God. Because remember, Naomi was bitter. God treated me poor. And now suddenly Naomi sees kindness. Hesed is the, is the Hebrew, Hebrew word that is God's loving kindness. And, and she uses that phrase to the living and to the dead. And that's what clues us in that she's talking about God. Because Naomi is going kinsman redeemer. Oh my goodness, the family name, the family land. She's seeing the possibility. She's the, well, no, I think Boaz saw it first. She's seeing the possibility of Boaz marrying Ruth, right? And so she's like, yeah, not today, Satan. Go, go, go God. She's excited about this. And so, um, that's why she says that man is our close relative. He's one of our guardian redeemers. That means kinsman redeemer. That's the Hebrew word goel. And I, we got to talk about that. I, you know, sorry, sometimes th- these things, we have to talk about this. It's shot through the whole Bible because Jesus Christ becomes the ultimate kinsman redeemer. Uh, and so this is important for us. So here we go. You ready? History, history, history. 
There are a few options for people who run out of money in those days. There's no banks. You can't borrow in that sense. And, and, and so if you run out of money or you run out of food, you have only, only a couple of options. Number one is you sell, you sell yourself into slavery. It's more like we would call indentured servitude. What you do is you say, I've gotten way behind. I, I need, you know, just whatever, $10,000. And you go to someone who's rich and they say, that, and they say, I will sell myself to you. And that person says, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll take your services, take you in for my services and I'll give you $10,000. But you have to serve me for five years. It's gonna be $2,000 a year that's gonna go towards paying off that debt. So you owe me five years. And in those five years, I will feed you, I will give you clothing, and I will give you shelter. But here's the problem with that. There's no obligation to family, to the other family, of the man who sells himself into slavery. If you sell yourself into that, it doesn't mean you're taking, you, you just have, you've, you've remedied the immediate problem. But here's the problem. Who's gonna work your field? Like for Elimelech. Two young boys, and they can't do it. So if he took this option, which was an option that happened all the time, it, it, he was in trouble. Now, the other thing you could do is you could sell your property. But it, there were some special caveats with that. The land is in your name. It's your inherited land. And so what it, very essentially what you would be doing is you'd be pawning your property. But this is how it worked. And I think this is what Elimelech probably did, and the rest of the book kind of brings it out. Elimelech probably went to somebody and said, I'm, I'm, I'm destitute, I'm down on my luck. I've heard there's food in, in, in Moab, but I don't have money to get to Moab. So I wanna sell you my property. And what it is, is the person then takes ownership, but not ownership, the person takes charge of that property with the idea that at some point you're gonna return and pay back, pay back for it. But in the meantime, that person can work your land and make profit off of it. But you can buy it back when you come back. And, and that's why God tells them when someone borrows from you, don't charge them interest. Why? Because you're gonna work that land. Because generally it was land. You're gonna work that land. You're gonna make plenty of money. You don't need to charge interest. Let them buy it back in two years, in five years, in 10 years. Let them buy it back for the same price. These are your choices. When you're, when you're down on your luck. These are your choices uh, when you, you uh, don't have enough money to live, all right? But there's also uh, the kinsman redeemer system, and that is to remedy this. The kinsman, kinsman redeemer would be a nearest person of kin who could redeem your property. The kinsman redeemer could pay for the property and just hand it back to you. That's what a kinsman redeemer could do. Leviticus gives all this, it's, it's, it's like 20-something verses on how all this works out. So they could redeem the property. They'd pay the pawn loan and you get your property back, all right? The kinsman redeemer also could buy someone out of slavery. You went in for 10,000, you've worked one year, so now it's just eight. All right, I'll pay the eight, this person goes free. That's what a kinsman redeemer could do. If they could afford to do it, they could do it. Sometimes they don't do it. Sometimes they say, nope, I can't do it. It would jeopardize my finances, right? There's a couple other things, but the other big one is this is that when there's a close relative and your dead relatives, and we've talked about this before, your dead relatives, uh, uh, the husband dies and the wife, and they have no child, that means the name has ended. To keep that name from ending and to keep property inheritance to working right, you take that woman in and, and you impregnate her and the son she has is the son of the, of the man who died. That's how that, that name carries on. We've seen that, it's in, it's in, that's in Jesus's family genealogy. All right, where a kinsman redeemer stepped in and saved a family name, and that family name got passed down to Jesus, right? So, so that's what they did. And here's the thing. So when Naomi says in verse 20, at the end of verse 20, that man is our close relative. He's one of our guardian redeemers, right? She's like, this could be the best thing. That could have been the best field choice you've ever made in your life, Ruth. Because that man could redeem the property, but he also can redeem you and a family name. And we see in the last, you know, we see uh, Naomi's not above saying, and a grandchild, right? She's not above saying that too. And so she sees this. So Naomi understands all of this significance. Ruth probably does not. 
Naomi, but Naomi just notices now when Ruth puts in her earplugs and she's listening to Spotify, she's always going, all the single ladies, all the single ladies, all the single. She is excited. She sees what's going on. She sees what's going on. She says, this man is the nearest kinsman redeemer, and look what he's doing for you. <laughs> right? She understands. She understands. All right. Enough silliness. Here we go. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it will be good for you, my daughter, to go with the women who work for him because in someone else's field, you might be harmed. Okay, Naomi is thinking, I don't know if you totally understand this, Ruth, so let me just say to you, follow that man. Do what he says. Do what he says. Uh, and then in verse 21, then Ruth, the Moabite, said, said, he even said to me, stay with my workers until they finish harvesting all my grain. All my, oh, sorry, uh, verse 23. So Ruth stayed close to the women of Boaz to glean until the barley and wheat harvests were done. And she lived with her mother-in-law. Okay, so what's going on? Three months, three months of what she's, she got that day, 30 to 40 pounds. Most, most, uh, most of the people who know about this say they have enough food, and not just food, but they have enough for everything for at least a year based on th three months of harvest the barley and the wheat. In other words, they're set for over a year to pay rent, food, you know, clothing, everything they need. Boaz is basically supporting them, all right? Supporting them because a crop is like money. And then it emphasizes she lived with her mother-in-law. She's fulfilling her promise. The writer of Ruth wants us to see this is the... Look at this character of this man named Boaz. Now, look at the character of this woman named Ruth. She is, she's fulfilling her promise when she said, where you go, I go. Where you die, I die. Your God's my God. We're together, never to be separated again. And she doesn't. She comes into, suddenly, it's almost like good money. And she still says, no, I'm faithful. I'm true. I will stay close to her. So, I'm sorry, I ran over a little bit. Real quick, here we are. What do we take from this incredible story? We are Ruth. We are destitute, broken, and without power. And we are offered an incredible kindness by our kinsman redeemer named Jesus. And Boaz is the picture of Jesus here. Saying, come under my cloak, come under my protection, stay close to me. That's what Jesus says. He says, I'm your kinsman redeemer. And so now we have to make a choice. Just like Ruth, does she keep gleaning in his field or does she go look for a better deal? Or does she just go where something that she, oh, their field looks, oh, they're really hard. This is good. They're sloppy harvesters, like, right? We have a choice. We choose. We, there's that initial choosing, the salvation where we accept Christ as our Savior. That's the initial choosing. But we make choices all the time, every day. Every day we make choices. Which field am I going to glean in? You know, I, that always makes me think of, you know, um, Harrison Ford and one, one of the Raiders ones where they go for the goblet and the guy picks the wrong goblet because he thinks Jesus would drink out of a jeweled goblet and then he just falls to pieces, you know, into dust. And then, and then this knight, you know, utters these words, he chose poorly. Just like that. He chose poorly. And you know what I'm afraid? I'm afraid in my life sometimes. There's a voice that says, Bob chose poorly. And now he's paying for it. I don't want that. I don't want that. Ruth is choosing wisely. She's making the correct choice. We are making choices every day. And I can't tell you what your choices are. I mean, everybody, it's different with every person. But we're making choices. And that helps us remember God is at work in even the small details of life. When things look bad, things look bitter, look at, look at Naomi. She said, I'm Mara, I'm bitter. And then not too long later, she goes, the kindness of God has been revealed in this man. She uses that word, kind, God's loving kindness. I am bitter no more. We have to be looking for him and that involves noticing even the small things that are going on in their lives, our lives. And the final thought here, real quick, God uses people 
That's how he works. And are we willing to be used? We have to be people who say, I'm willing, Lord. Show me. I'm willing. Help me. Help me. And I do this a lot. Help me to see the people that no one else sees. Because those are the ones you love so deeply. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this beautiful book that is poignant and powerful. Help us to see that like Ruth, you are working. And we just need to step out and trust. And we give you the thanks and the praise in Jesus' name. Amen.